The book of Acts and chapter 10, as we draw near to the end of this series, been looking at the first 11 chapters of Acts, noting that in Acts chapter 1, Jesus gave us a mission, a mission to be His witnesses. It's still our mission today, but specifically these early believers were to begin in Jerusalem to go into all Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. We've seen that in the first two to three years, the church grew rapidly, expanding to uh, growing right at the beginning by thousands, and then up to the end of three years, they were close to 30,000 by my reckoning. However, all the believers in the church at that time were Jews, All the activity was centered around Jerusalem. And then we saw in chapter 8 that persecution began. And as it did, the the church scattered. And in chapter 8, the wall of prejudice between Jew and Samaritan was broken down as the church was scattered throughout Judea and into Samaria. And the gospel penetrated to the Samaritans, the half-breed Jews, and many of them also became part of the church. Here today, as we come to Acts chapter 10, it's eight or more likely ten years after the beginning of the church, after the day of Pentecost. The gospel has spread throughout all of Jerusalem, all of Judea, and all of Samaria, but it is still waiting to go to the ends of the earth. And for that to happen, first, the gospel needs to go to Gentiles. After all, everything beyond Israel is Gentile, the Gentile world. But so far, as we come here to this chapter, so far, the church is comprised solely of Jewish and Samaritan believers. There's likely many reasons why after ten years the gospel has never yet spread to the Gentiles. But probably one of the biggest reasons was just how difficult it was for these early believers to, these early Jewish believers to shake the old habits of prejudice. For centuries, some toxic misunderstandings and misrepresentations of God's Word had corrupted the Jewish thought and had bred in them some attitudes of arrogance and of fear and disdain towards the Gentiles. They regarded them as unclean dogs. You know, it's hard to reach out to people that you despise and bring them to Jesus. Or people that you perhaps believe are beyond reaching. But now as we come to chapter 10, according to God's providential plan, according to His clock, His time, it's time to break the Gentile barrier, and bring Gentiles into the church. That's what's before us here in chapter 10. It's a lot of, a lot of material, and being as we have short time, I'm just going to read the text and just give a few comments along the way. Then I want to end this morning with just three important lessons I think we need to take away from this text this morning. At Caesarea... There was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. 
a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who had spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Caesarea is a coastal city in Palestine. It's, it's a beautiful city from what I understand. It was a beautiful city. It was given by Caesar Augustus to Herod as a gift. And King Herod then took that city and built it into a grand city, a showplace. And he named it after Caesar. And so it's called Caesarea. In our way of thinking, and we think it this way because we read the Scriptures, which come from a Jewish, Jewish vantage point, the capital of Israel is Jerusalem. And it was in the days of the kings. But in the time of Christ, in this first century, Jerusalem is no longer the capital. It is the capital for the Jewish thought because the temple is there. Their worship is there. Their power base is there. But from the Roman mindset, the capital of Israel or of Judea is Caesarea. It was where the governors ruled from, the center of power in Palestine. It, it's mostly just ruins today, but there's still some amazing things that you can see there that testify to what a grand city it was. Living in this city of Caesarea were a lot of soldiers. It was primarily a Roman city. After all, it's the capital. And here we find a centurion. A centurion is a, is a commander of a hundred soldiers. And they were, no, they were part of the Italian cohort. Folks who were born and bred in Rome and considered to be the most loyal of all of the Roman troops. This man is a Roman. He's been raised in steeped in all of the, of the religion of Rome, all the gods of Rome, Jupiter, Augustus, Mars, Venus. Yet now he believes, as we find, he believes in the one God, Yahweh God. He prays always, gives alms to the people. Uh, your translation may say gives alms to the needy or gave alms to the Jews. The Greek just says the people and we make assumptions. Is it Jews or needy or needy Jews? Take your pick. It says that he follows God, feared God with all his household. This man not only has broken away from the religion of Rome and, and is, is a God-fearer, he also has brought all of his family with him based upon his, his own character, his own teaching, his family has followed. About the ninth hour, it says he is praying. That's around three o'clock in the afternoon. It's the, 
the time for the evening prayers, traditional time for the Jews. It's the time of the where the sacrifice is offered in the evening. And so apparently he is adopting Jewish habits in his prayer. And then God sends him an angel. God is touched by this man's heart, by this man's sincerity. And God sends an angel with a message. Send men to Joppa and bring back Simon Peter. Joppa is another coastal city. It's about 30 miles to the south of Caesarea. Last week we were in chapter 9. We saw the conversion of the Apostle Paul and we stopped about halfway through the chapter. Had we continued, we'd find the scene switches to Peter. And after, after Saul has become a believer, the persecution against the Christians has slowed down. It has actually stopped. And there's a time of peace in the church. Because of that, the church begins to flourish and grow even more. And we find that the Apostle Peter takes, as it were, a preaching tour around through all of, of Judea and Samaria. And he ends up in Joppa, the last verse of chapter 9. He stayed in Joppa many days. Some scholars think that many days was up to two years. So Peter is in Joppa, just 30 miles away. And God tells this man, Cornelius, send some folks and get him. Cornelius immediately obeys. It says he sends a devout soldier. And by the way, that means that apparently this man has not only affected his family, but here's a soldier who as well is a God-fearer. Some of the men under his command he has influenced greatly. So he sends the soldier and these two servants, even though God has not even told him why he's to do this. He never says why he wants Peter to be there. He just says, send for Peter. He does. Verse 9, the next day, they were on their, their journey and approaching the city. Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. And this happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. About the sixth hour, it was about noon, Peter goes up to the patio, as it were, on the rooftop, goes up there to have a time of prayer. As this house was by the sea, it's probably an ocean view of the Mediterranean, and it's it's got nice breezes. He's hungry and he's waiting for lunch, but he's using the time to pray. And God sends a vision. God had different plans as he's waiting for lunch. He's going to send him a vision about lunch. And there he sees this giant sheet or tarp and, and it's folded up the four corners and tied together perhaps at the top and maybe by a rope and maybe the rope is letting it down. But What's inside this sheet are all kinds, it says, of animals, reptiles, and birds, 
God says, Peter, have lunch. Arise, kill, and eat. Peter looks at these animals and he realizes they're not kosher. They're not from the approved Jewish diet. And he says, you know, no. The Old Testament law had a lot of restrictions about what they could eat and what they could not. We don't think much about it because we, we aren't under the law. We're not familiar with those things. And some of those things we just think we're just fine. Don't eat bats. We're good with that. Don't eat snakes. Bother anybody? Probably not. What about don't eat shrimp? Yeah, some of you are kind of, yeah, I like shrimp. Or don't eat pigs. No ham. No bacon. How do you go without bacon? No pork chops. Peter says, no. By no means, Lord. By the way, that's an oxymoron. To say, by no means, and Lord in the same sentence. If He's Lord, it's not by no means, it's yes, Lord. If it's by no means, you're not honoring Him as Lord. But He says, by no means, Lord. I've always followed the law on my diet and never eaten anything unclean. And God responds saying, what I've made clean, do not call common nor unclean. Three times this vision happens. Three times to, you know, whenever God repeats stuff, it's important. Good rule of thumb as you're reading through Scripture. When it's repeated, recognize it's there repeated for a reason. God doesn't waste real estate in Scripture. Three times. I love Peter. He's like all of us. He's a work in progress. Peter is so just there. He's out there. He's always all in, and he's quick to say what he thinks and then has to take it back. I just love Peter. He reminds me a lot of me and a lot of us. He's far from perfect, but God doesn't use Peter because he's perfect. He uses Peter because he's willing and he is all in. God has reshaped Peter so much already in this in this book. And he's reshaped, we've seen him reshape Peter's view of Samaritans to where he's one who's moved from one like all of them who doesn't know what to think of Samaritans, doesn't like them, and then he becomes a preacher to the Samaritans. He's staying in this chapter, it says he's staying with Simon the Tanner, and we don't think much about that except that tanners were considered unclean. A good Jew wouldn't stay with a tanner because they always deal with Dead animals. If a woman was engaged to a guy and it turned out that he was a tanner, she could break the engagement. She was expected to. And yet Peter has, is spending time in this man's home. Peter's been reshaped in his views about a lot of people and a lot of things. God's about to do some more reshaping. Because he's a work in progress, kind of like you and me. Verse 17 While Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what that vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, they stood at the gate and they called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. 
While Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What's the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. And so he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. Peter was confused about what's going on here, about what this vision means. But as he's trying to sort that out, there's already a calling down at the gate. The men are there. Quite a surprise as he goes and opens the door. There are three Gentiles there. One of them is a Roman soldier. You can just imagine, it's like the SS troops showing up at your gate. Concern. Their story is that their boss is a Roman commander, a centurion sent to bring Peter to speak to him. And their boss is a good and a God-fearing man. And he's good to the Jews. And he got his instructions from an angel. So won't you come? I'm sure Peter is listening to all this and he's thinking in his mind, you can sugarcoat this all you want. (laughs) Your boss is a nice guy, but I'm being asked to go with Gentiles to go to a Gentile's home to speak to Gentiles. And it's a worst case scenario because it's not just a Gentile. It's a Roman. And it's a Roman soldier. It's a commander of Roman soldiers. Those soldiers who are the same ones who enforce this Roman occupation that we despise. But at this point, what can Peter say? I'm sure he's figured out that the vision is all about this. Matter of fact, God said, go with them. The vision's tied to this. I wonder if it enters this, his mind that a few centuries before, there was another preacher that came to Joppa whom God had given a message to take to Gentiles. And instead, he caught a boat and tried to run away from God to Spain. And ended up as fish bait. You know the story. And Peter probably thinks, you know, I don't want to try Jonah's tactic. (laughs) That one didn't work. What does God want me to do? He realizes that this vision is saying that God is saying what, what you think is unclean, but what I have said is clean, is clean. And don't you dare call it unclean. And it's no coincidence now that here are unclean Gentiles at my door. And God has said, go with them without hesitation. He gets the point. I know he does because what he does next violates every tradition, every instinct that he has as a Jewish man. He breaks every cultural protocol. And as these three men are there at the door, he says, come on in. Let's have dinner. And why don't you stay the night? That just broke every cultural norm. The next morning, where his, in the vision, his words to the Lord were, 
By no means, Lord. He has changed to yes, Lord. And he gets up in the morning and they all head out. They travel. And then the next day, they get to Caesarea. By the way, notice that as they took off, it says here that they took, he took some brothers from Joppa, some of the Christian believers there in Joppa. He took them along with him. We find out over in chapter 11 where he's relating this whole event. He says there were six of them. He takes six brothers because I think he realized that what is about to happen is going to be historic. Verse 24. So on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, Stand up, for I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. And I asked them, why you sent for me? I love this. Cornelius didn't even know why really he was supposed to have Peter come. He only believes, not, he not only believes that these men will actually go to Joppa and find a real guy named Simon Peter, but they'll bring him back and Simon Peter is going to have something significant to say. So significant that Cornelius has gotten all of his friends together. Anybody he can grab, he has brought them and already has them sitting at his house waiting. It would be quite an invitation, by the way. Hey, come on over. Why? Got somebody coming. Who? I'm not sure. Some guy named Simon Peter. What's he going to do? I don't know. God told me to get him. So I just thought I'd bring you too. Come on over. It's going to be fun, really. (laughs) They're there. They're waiting. Peter gets there. The centurion falls at his feet and worships Peter. And Peter, of course, as the first pope, says, you know, this is a really good thing to do. It's a good and proper thing. No. He doesn't say that. He says, stand up. I'm just a man. Peter's heart has been changed, by the way, because it'd be real tempting to sit there as someone under Roman oppression all these years to just say, yeah, (laughs) you're in the right place now. No. No. He says, stand up, I'm just a man. Just like you. No more significant, no more important than this one that he has grown up calling an uncircumcised, filthy Gentile dog. I'm just a man like you. Here's Peter, the apostle. Peter, the believer in Christ. He's already got the message. Then he addresses the elephant in the room because all these folks have grown up in Palestine. They know how it goes. And he says, folks, you know how unlawful it is for me as a Jew to associate with Gentiles. Not unlawful according to the Word of God. Unlawful according to the law as 
interpreted and amplified by the rabbis and by their Jewish culture. But he's saying, I realize God has shown me that is wrong. Now, why am I here? Cornelius says, well, four days ago, about this hour I was praying in the house, in my house, we're in verse 30, on the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing, and he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. And so I sent for you at once. And you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. He says, man, God told me to send for you. We don't know what you have to say, but it must be important. Here we are. Let's have church. Speak God's Word to us, Peter. So Peter opens his mouth. He begins to preach. Verse 34, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. As for the word that He sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with Him. And we are witnesses of all that He did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they put Him to death by hanging Him on a tree. But God raised Him on the third day and made Him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with Him after He rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He is the one anointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To Him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who heard the Word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter, they were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared... Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked Him to remain with them for some days. Peter doesn't even get to finish his sermon. They hear about Jesus and they all believe. God sends the Holy Spirit upon them with visible manifestations like He did on the Jewish believers on the day of Pentecost. So if any of them were having any doubts that Gentiles could be saved, that Gentiles could be brought into the church, those doubts were erased. Because as Peter will say in the next chapter, who am I to resist God? Who am I to stand in His way. Three important lessons for us to get from this account. The first is this. The Gospel is for all people. 
The gospel is for Jews and also for Gentiles. The gospel is for folks with tattoos and piercings and straight-laced people. The gospel is for Republicans and Democrats and Communists, for Muslims and Hindus, for young people and old people and fat people and skinny people, for unpopular people and for celebrities, for the rich people and poor people, for LGBT people, for prisoners and drug dealers and gangbangers. See, the gospel is for everybody. And it says that God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. It doesn't say so that most people, those who are on the approved list, who believe in Him, will have eternal life. It says that God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whosoever will believe in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. You and I need to overcome our prejudices. And we would all like to think that we are people who are without prejudice. Prejudice is a lot bigger and a lot deeper thing than an issue of black or white. We all have prejudices. Those people that we just think are too weird, too far gone, too dirty, too unclean, too beneath us, whatever. We need to overcome those prejudices enough to care for all people, to love them enough to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them, with anyone, with all who will listen. Along those lines, Christianity is neither racial nor is it cultural. And so when we take the gospel out to the ends of the earth, we do not have to transform people to our culture. That has been a tendency in generations gone by often as missionaries would go out into other cultures and try to make them Western or American Christians. You become a Christian, you become a believer in Christ, that's good. Now you need to start dressing like a Westerner. Now you need to start acting like a Westerner. Now we're going to build a church building and put pews in it and have you sit in pews and we're going to sing hymns that we've just taken from the West and put over here and translated into your language. But that's not what the Bible calls us to do. We must not compromise, ever compromise what Scripture says we must do, but we must never impose that which is not in Scripture upon those who are becoming believers. And that becomes that is a problem throughout the history of the, the ongoing story of the New Testament of Jews who continue to try to impose elements of Judaism upon believers. But we do that ourselves. So let us learn the gospel is for all people. Secondly, salvation is through Jesus only. Cornelius was a good man. And I'm sure you have heard, as I, from some folks that, you know, what really is important is that you are 
that you love God and you're sincere. And if you love God and you're sincere and you do good and you try to be good, that really is enough. God surely will not reject the person who is sincere and religious and good. Cornelius was the poster boy for a good religious person who even knows who God is and fears God, and yet he wasn't saved. Peter said in a sermon back in Acts chapter 4, and Pastor Aaron preached on this, Peter says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Being moral, being well-disciplined, being prayerful, being religious, being devout, being virtuous, being reverent, being church-going, being influential, giving, obedient, whatever else, those are all nice things, but they will not save anyone. You can come to this church every day of your life. You can sit here and pretend to be a good church-going person, even be a good church-going person. It doesn't save you. We are saved through faith by believing in Jesus Christ. That is the only thing that saves us. There is no other name. There is no other way. Peter, by the way, understands that it's not just like believe in the name of Jesus. is like some magical thing. I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. It's not a magic phrase, a magic word that we believe when we say we believe in the name of Jesus. It's not that it's a magic word. When the Bible talks about the name of Jesus, it's talking about who He is and what He does. And you'll notice that as Peter preaches the sermon here, it's all about who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And it's when they hear that, they believe. And when they believe, they are saved. Peter doesn't get to finish his sermon. They just get saved in the middle of it as they hear who Jesus is. They're going, yeah, we believe that. And the Holy Spirit comes upon them. The Holy Spirit came upon them, I think, in that visible way for the benefit of the Jews that were there. For the Holy Spirit comes upon all of us who believe and trust in Christ. If everybody is saved through Jesus only, the question sometimes comes up, what about those folks who have never heard about Jesus? Cornelius, I think, is a perfect example of what happens. If somebody is looking for Christ. God is always aware of the searching heart and I believe He always takes light that is needed to the one who is seeking. He never misses any because He is the God who is anxious to save all, the Scripture says, to bring all to repentance that none would perish. That's His desire. Matthew 7, 8 says that the one who who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, the one who knocks It will be opened. And so God will always send light to those who seek. But the Apostle Paul writes over in Romans chapter 10, verse 14, and he says, But how will they hear unless someone preaches? And that brings me really to the next point, the last point. See, because we are His witnesses. How will people hear? Well, it is through us. As I see the Scripture, God has no plan B. We've seen before, as we see here, that 
God could use angels to speak the gospel to people, but He doesn't. It would have been a whole lot easier if when the angel appeared to Cornelius, if he just said, let me tell you how to become a believer in Christ. It would have saved a whole lot of trouble. But Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. He gave us the mission, Acts 1.8. God sovereignly works to prepare the hearer to receive the gospel. He sovereignly as well prepares us as the witnesses and He sets up divine appointments. We have seen that now in case after case in these different stories as God has set up a divine appointment. He still does that today with you and me. The question is not do people need to hear the gospel? The question is not does God want me to be a witness? And the question is not, does God provide opportunities? The question is, are we being cooperative and faithful as witnesses? Do we say to God, as Stephen did in the vision, by no means, Lord. I can't, I don't want, no, I'm just busy. Or do we say, as Peter really said when the men showed up at the door, yes, Lord. This is a really uncomfortable situation for me. I don't really want to go do that. But yes, Lord, I'm going. Father, thank You for the grace that You've given to us in rescuing us through the blood of Your Son, paying for our sin, giving us new life and giving us eternal life. How we should be overcome by Your great love for us and Your great love for the world. You've given to us the great privilege of being Your witnesses. And yet, so often, we don't use the words, but the way we live is we say, by no means, Lord. Uh Uh-uh, not me. I've got other things going on. Or God, I'm scared. Or we make all our excuses. Lord, may we remember your heart for the world. May we break down prejudices that hold us back. May we set aside the excuses. May we engage the mission you have given to us to be your witnesses, to take this message to the ends of the earth and next door. This we ask in Jesus' name.